five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the WDMA and the NMOA. Join the digital revolution. No, join, <laughs> join the digital resistance. Uh, David Foley made me a new sign. Look at that. Join the digital resistance. We're going to resist digital. No, you can do digital. It's okay. But we're going to prove to you that it's a waste of money. <laughs> anyway, um, whoa, something's updating on my – oh, it's down there. Anyway, uh, let's talk about personalization right off the bat. Coffee for – I didn't get his name, but it's the guy with the weird hair and ugly brown jacket. <laughs> you weren't supposed to read that out loud. Just look at the, look for the customer with that description. <laughs> You know, so the coffee shop is supposed to write the name of the person on the on the uh, on the cup, but they didn't. Okay, so not good, not good. Uh, and uh, Shep here says no personalization is better than raw than personalization done wrong. Okay, so we're going to talk about that right off the bat. Let's get over to the uh, let's get over to the article i gotta find the article here don't fake the personal touch okay and the funniest part is you know he one of the points he makes is that names are tough to get right and this is his website hiken.com but he's got his name just all one word shep hike it looks like shepakin Shefakin, but it's really Shep Hyken. And so he's got his own name done wrong, which I guess is okay. But, you know, over here on the side, he actually did that cartoon. So that's pretty cool that he does cartoons. Very nicely done, I, I would say. Uh, you know, he's probably as good as Scott Adams with Dilbert. Uh, maybe better. There's a little more, there's a little more to those characters. I like them. Anyway, I'm going to have to find out more about, about his work because he's a, Best-selling New York Times author and a award-winning speaker. Okay, so one of the most powerful customer service and customer and experience tactics is personalization. We interviewed a thousand customers for our CX research, and 71 said personalized experience is important to them. You know, I always like the one that says, "I'm more likely, I'm three times more likely to buy something that matters to me than that doesn't." What a stupid, what a stupid circular question. <laughs> no, I'm going to buy things I don't want because just to prove that personalization does, doesn't matter. Okay, customers feel as if you recognize them using their name, remembering their past purchases, their buying pattern, and more can build confidence and trust. And one of the, one of, you know, one of the things I remember from way back in life is I used to contribute to uh, CBN, which is the Christian Broadcasting Network, and I uh, I remember getting a mailer from them. This was probably 70s, mid 70s somewhere, and it said, you know, it said my name. Thank you for giving $15 a month or whatever. It wasn't a big amount, and we wondered if you could maybe make it 20 a month or something like that. Just a little incremental you know, 25% increase or something, but it wasn't a lot of money. But I was just impressed that they actually thanked me for what I had been giving because, you know, I was giving regularly and I wasn't making a lot of money back in those days selling print. 
but um you know i, I and maybe it isn't that, that big a deal anymore but um <clears throat> while personalization is is nice this is really an important part it's not required you know i've had yeah i've had uh sales calls on the phone or or more likely you call in to you know try to figure out how to do your login on your on your electronic banking and that they make you change the password every month <laughs> funny thing you can't remember it and so you know they'll say uh they'll say john thank you for calling john is there anything more we can do for you today john and you know it, it does get a little bit annoying they don't really love you um he just uh, he mentions that he got a an email that was addressed, Dear Not Provided. I got an email from Chris Lyons the other day. I wrote him on it, and it was Dear Victoria. No, it said Dear John, but it was in the subject line. It was Victoria, you know, something about print print <laughs> impressions or some PI world or whatever it is. Yeah, but it's, it was it, in the subject line. It said Victoria. I don't know why it said Victoria, but I screen captured it for him and asked him who Victoria was. Sort of funny when it's a you know direct marketing friendly magazine or website publication, we'll call it. Uh, I hope this email finds you well. That's interesting because I did a an article on on using. AI in sales, and they use that same introduction, which I have never seen until now, and now I see it twice. So probably it was AI generated, um, because that's a funny expression. I hope this email finds you well. You know, I found your email. You didn't find my, me. <laughs> Obviously, my name is not provided. So when they called, they said the person in charge of technology. I have a little thing on my phone that says spam risk, and that person calls me a lot. <laughs> okay, so their personalization strategy failed. Um, so how to create a personalized experience, use the customer's name. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to do with customer name or buying history. Sometimes you've you get a little intelligence. I didn't share this one yesterday, but it was probably a better one. Make appropriate recommendations. Okay, so back in the 80s, I was working at a company, and we sold imprinted merchandise. And we're going to have another story about this at the very end. And um, we got a lot of orders from AT&T people. And it was because AT&T had instituted a corporate policy where you could only use a certain vendor for imprinted merchandise. And part of the reason they did was because if you remember the old globe, it had lots of stripes in it. And they had six different versions of that globe. If it was done light on dark, it had one version. If it was small, it had very, very fine lines. If it was a lot, no, it had very course lines so you could so it still looked good small if it was big it had very fine lines you know and so there were so there were ways it was supposed to be done and uh when we went around to the convention at the imprinted merchandise convention half the logos were wrong and i knew that because they wrote me a letter and they said cease and desist taking orders from our employees <laughs> 
And we had a really fancy law firm and they said, well, they can't tell you that if the employee has a, you know, corporate credit card and is, you know, is really an employee, then you're, you're not responsible for them policing their own employees. So we decided to just, you know, lean into it a little bit because the reason that the AT&T employees were calling was because they didn't want just AT&T on their hat. They wanted AT&T long lines or some other division for, you know, or AT&T long lines company picnic or whatever it was. And so they sent me the actual, there's spam risk again. They sent me the actual rule book. Because I said, well, you know, oh, they asked me to bid on it. And I said, well, send me the rule book and we'll see what it looks like. And that's how I learned about all this stuff being messed up. So we decided, since we rented millions of names every year, we decided to take all those rented names and find all the AT&Ts in them and put a little message, inkjet message. That's all. And we said, we know how to follow the rules. We'll make sure you don't get in trouble. Well, that thing, I'll pull, that out pulled our hotline. That out pulled all our customer file. That was the best, you know, we would find, you know, out of a million names, we might only find a couple of thousand. But, boy, we put that on everything. And for two years we were doing that. And, you know, we did know the rules and we did make sure they did it right. But that's a way of personalization can work, you know, without the name, without necessarily even the items recommended. Another way to personalize is to change the cover, you know, to make to make a special cover or make a special envelope or an, a message on the envelope for a sub market or a micro market that you know about. Um, those are excellent ways to do it. Make them believe that you know something about their market. Okay, that's talked too long about that one. I will skip this one pretty much. Decarbonization in the ad industry. And um, this article basically says that there was a big push in 2022 to uh, wrestle the carbon emissions of digital advertising into submission. And it's a rather, it's, it's a lofty ideal rather than a concrete reality. And the reason I put the concrete in there is because, uh, I hold two patents on recycling cement or recycling coal ash into cement and, uh, millions of tons go into landfills every year. If we could get that going, we could do a lot more than what, <laughs> what they're going to do with digital advertising. But they said that um, trying to figure out how much there really is is like trying to count raindrops in a storm, which I really liked. Uh, digital advertising churns out a mind-boggling amount of emissions. It's not really that much. One digital online campaign is equal to half the annual impact of an entire British citizen. Okay, 5.4 tons, which sounds like a lot, but it isn't really that much. And uh, <laughs> so I think it's it's funny that they they are po trying to police themselves and find it's almost impossible. Uh, the Internet's contribution, which is a big jump from a, a digital ad campaign, <laughs> the whole Internet, right? You people watching this video are to blame. So, you know, get the, get the article. Um, with carbon emissions, there's no room for smoke and mirrors. And we're going to talk about how the whole thing is basically smoke and mirrors. Now, another interesting article, and uh, Steve Falka liked this one because he did an actual study on direct mail and its contribution to CO2 in the atmosphere. But this one makes a really interesting article. It says, paper products are not a major contributor to climate change. And the reason they say that is because paper products use biomass, carbon 
neutral biomass. Okay, so let's say you've got a bathtub. And let's say water's coming into the bathtub. You've got a spout, you've got the tap open, filling the bathtub, and you've got the thing plugged because you want to take a bath. And now you take a bucket, a five-gallon bucket, and you say, well, this isn't from the water department. This is from a pure mountain stream. And you forget the bathtub. I did this once in St. Louis. I was steaming my clothes for a for the for the speech next day, and I inadvertently went to dinner or something and was flooding the bathroom. So let's say the bathroom the the bathtub is overflowing, and you say, "Well, this is a different kind of water. Let's pour this in. This doesn't count." <laughs> Will that still overflow the bathtub? Absolutely. Okay, so this person here argues that because paper, to, to, to fuel the process, they use, they use the, the spare wood pulp biomass, the leftovers, and they say that because it comes from wood, this CO2 doesn't count <laughs> in the atmosphere. Somehow the atmosphere takes this CO2 and puts it right back into trees. And it came from trees. But this CO2 came from fossils. No, CO2 doesn't really come from fossils. CO2 comes from compressed plants that were crushed in a global flood. Maybe Noah. Where do you think the CO2 came from that was in those plants? It came from the atmosphere. This is just delayed plant CO2, right? The gas in your car, it's coming from plants, and it's coming from plants that took it from the atmosphere. I know this is a big breakthrough for you guys, but that's what, you know, this fossil fuel industry is basically digging up old plants and burning them. It's the same thing. It all counts. Now, if you really believe that it affects the climate, uh, I'll put a link to Dr. Judith Curry, she worked on the, uh, I think, the second and third IPCC reports, and then she quit because, and she's got, she worked for NOAA, she worked for everybody, NASA, and uh, she's one of the most top credentialed climate scientists in the world, and uh, I'll put a link to a recent interview she did about how this thing has been politicized. The scientists were summarized into you know, into this CO2 uh, hysteria, it's just get some better news sources, for heaven's sakes. That's what I do here. And uh, I study this stuff a lot. But as I said, here's the IPCC mentioned over and over and over and over. And most of this is, you know, go on WDMA.org or uh, NMOA.org. You'll go right to WDMA. You can join, support our efforts, but let's get to a real article. Okay, this is an excellent, excellent article, now that you've been with me this long. Courtney Henson, The Art of Isolating Testing Variables in Direct Mail Campaigns. And this is like everything. This is from Gunderson Direct, Mike Gunderson over there. Uh, test variables, the key takeaways are that test variables, you, you have to test the variables to enhance campaigns and to make informed decisions to optimize reaching target audiences effectively. See, ultimately, marketing is predicting the future. What we're trying to do is guess who to reach out to, what to say to them, 
and what to offer to them, okay? But we, we don't have data from the future. All data is historical. Did you know that? No matter it's real-time data or it's old-time data, <laughs> data is all in the past. It happens now, which is some people don't even admit that the present exists, but somehow the future goes to the past and in the process creates data and the data is all in the past, right? So how do we predict the future? Well, we can just take wild WAS guesses at it. You know, that's pretty much what all the marketing and all the ad agencies, watch my show from yesterday. It's over on YouTube, uh, but the link is in the description about the uh, Red Baron and what they guessed would be relevant. I took a poll last night and I my numbers agreed with the guests at dinner. But anyway, so the way we predict the future in the rest of the world, the way NASA gets to the moon, if they did, <laughs> the way NASA gets to the moon is that they they know the physics. They know the acceleration of gravity, right? They've experimented with it. They've experimented with it in a vacuum as best they could. They've experimented with it in other types of atmosphere. They've experimented it with it in water and all sorts of other other effects, right? They know the effects of friction. They know the effects of, of uh, I don't know, solar activity, which is the main driver of climate, incidentally. And uh, so what they do is they experiment and they isolate variables, okay? And from that, they create explanations. If the atmosphere is thicker, things fall slower. Gravity doesn't change, things fall slower. And therefore, if we can quantify the thickness of the atmosphere, more or less, we can predict and also the shape affects how things fall. Um, we can predict how something, how long it'll take for, for it to hit the earth okay in in advertising and marketing we rarely do that we rarely even test carefully enough to know the impact of one variable over another so Courtney is explaining how that's done it's all about testing and experimentation but the goal is to predict the future that's what it's about that's what you're getting paid for so remember back in high school chemistry, isolating variables in a scientific experiment. When you isolate the variables, you can see the impact of each one individually. And that's what direct mail allows you to do. Now, in modeling, you can actually do multiple variables to some extent, right? Different populations or carefully doing multidimensional A-B tests. You can do that and you can actually see some impact. I highly recommend, though, that you retest if you find something truly amazing, right? And that's really the, 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 the value of modeling. And direct mail is really the only media that's capable of that because we know who got the offer, who engaged with it, who made a decision and didn't buy. That, that, that act of throwing it in the trash is meaningful, okay? And I'm just going to talk about, just going to talk briefly about, let's see if this works, yeah, about this test I mentioned yesterday, where our hypothesis was based on the observation that people didn't get. They said, well, why would I want to buy a Pontiac hat? Or why would I want to buy a J.I. Case mug, right? Or an Avon uh, 
set of pens or something like that. Or I think this pen is Avon. And so I came up with the hypothesis that if we said things like your imprint here on the items, we might get the idea across and we would get a better response. Well, this catalog cover against this one, 300,000 of each, you know, very significant test, got a 40% lift, 40%. Not a word of copy changed, not a price, not a page, not anything else in the catalog except this one image that looks almost identical visually to the other image. Okay, so that confirmed our hypothesis and we had a theory that we better keep some items with this your imprint here on the, especially on the cover. And that's how we predict the future in marketing. Have a great day, like and share, repost, and join the digital resistance. Bye-bye.